You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I uh, just wanted to let you know that this program of ours is presented in part by Audible. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but you can actually listen to The New Yorker on Audible. Every issue, every week. They've got all kinds of publishers and broadcasters, entertainers, business information providers. And uh, this week, brand new on Audible, Hillary Clinton's book. It's called What Happened. And uh, fun fact, she actually reads it herself. I had to uh, read this book very quickly before this interview. And uh, it wasn't on Audible yet. I got the book a little early. And I really wished it was up there so I could have heard it. It would have been so easy. I could have listened on the train. I could have listened on my walk home. Audible is uh, just a super easy way to listen to audiobooks. There is no better audiobook service. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at www.audible.com slash longform. Again, that's audible.com slash longform, L-O-N-G-F-O-R-M, for a free audiobook with your 30-day free trial. Here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with uh, my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff in the studio, Aaron Lammer, Remoto. How are you guys? Hey. <laughs> where are you, Aaron? You're out there. I'm, um, I don't know where. I'm, I'm far flung. <laughs> Aaron's, Aaron's in his undisclosed music location. Yes, uh, but I hear, I hear that in my absence, uh, big things have been happening for this podcast. Big guests have been booked. Uh, it's true. Hillary Clinton is on the show this week. Former Secretary of State... Former uh, Democratic nominee for president, current resident of Chappaqua, New York. I know that you worked uh, on a campaign podcast for the Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, but this interview, as I understand it, is about the writing of her book. Yeah, she has a book out this week. It's called What Happened. And uh, yeah, I did this work for the campaign. I co-hosted a podcast with Hillary. And uh, she called me recently and said, I got this book coming out. Why don't we uh, come up and do a podcast about it? And uh, so we taped... Uh, with her, and she also wanted to uh, do the long-form podcast, so we did that too. Uh, it's a stop along the course that uh, any uh, distinguished uh, American diplomat will be making. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, having just listened to this interview, that yes, uh, Hillary Clinton will be all over news about this book. It's a big book, but a lot of people are asking questions like, why did she write the book? And this conversation is the most in-depth, I think, that you will get about why she wrote this book 
what the process was that went into it. That's what we specialize in here at this podcast. So uh, it's a great interview. Uh, this podcast is brought to you as always by MailChimp. They make it easy to send emails. And now here's Max with Hillary Clinton. Want to talk about this book? I do want to talk about the book because I want to go back and forth with you about what happened and what we can do to make sure it doesn't happen again. You've started your book tour. Yes. You're doing your thing. Yes. Are there like annoying book tour questions that you keep getting over and over again that I should avoid? Actually not, because (laughs) we've only started with the best minds and the strongest thinkers we could find. So we know that you're up to the task. Well, speaking of strongest thinkers, (laughs) we're in your basement and uh, there's there's a bunch of books around and I was waiting for you to show up and looking at the books. And uh, there's a lot of uh, great titles, legendary titles. One that uh, jumped out to me is um, uh, Global Warming for Dummies. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's pretty amazing that that's in your basement. Yeah, well, it is because... We've had to pull it out to try to talk to people. <laughs> people don't want to listen. And so Bill and I got kind of desperate. And, uh, okay, how are we going to explain this? You know, there's an atmosphere, and there are these things called greenhouse gases, <laughs> and they trap heat, and that affects water temperature. And, oh, my gosh, have you heard of Harvey and Irma and maybe Jose? Yeah. We look at any source we can find to try to explain things to people. Can we start where the book starts? We can start where the book starts. Tell me about uh, November 8th, 2016. Ugh. A day that shall live in infamy in my brain anyway. We had a great day before the election. It was wonderful. Energized crowds, a lot of enthusiasm. When we were in Philadelphia with President and Mrs. Obama, we all felt really confident, positive. Uh, you know, he gave me a big hug and he said, I'm so proud of you. You know, you've got this. Uh, so we got back to where I live in Westchester County uh, outside of New York. And we got back about four o'clock in the morning and the um, airport tarmac was filled with so many of my friends and supporters. So it was a really positive, uplifting uh, time. And then we got up in a few hours after that, went to vote. And again, there were so many people there who supported me and had kind and wonderful and encouraging and optimistic things to say. I hate election days. I hate them because you've done all you can do and you have to wait and you never truly know what's going to happen. And so after we voted, you know, I, uh, you know, do what I do when I'm feeling a little at loose ends or stressed out. I started cleaning out drawers and closets. That is my you know, go-to relaxation. And I love it because there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And, you know, I did a lot of that after the election, but even on election day, I was kind of like, okay, I got to keep myself busy and occupied. I try not to pay attention to the, you know, reports, the exit polls, because so often they're misleading. You don't have people coming in and like reading you the latest numbers. Oh, they try to, but I say, look, I'm not, I I don't want to hear it. I'm doing this drawer thing. Yeah, I I don't want to hear it because I don't want to, I don't want to get all wound up one way or the other. My husband, by contrast, is like absorbing every single bit of information. And then we uh, went to the hotel in uh, New York uh, City where we were going to be for the night, my family, um, campaign staff. 
And when we arrived, my grandchildren were there. And so I got to spend time with them. And I, you know, I was feeling apprehensive because elections make me feel that way, but I was feeling good. And uh, until the first returns started coming in after the polls closed, and then it was really very distressful um, because, you know, the first reports out of Florida and North Carolina were not what we had hoped for. And it was hard to understand because I had done so well in the early vote in Florida. I had what lots of analysts said was an insurmountable lead. What happened? Part of what I was thinking about that night was that, you know, I'd gotten to know you a little bit. And one of the things that I couldn't stop thinking about was like, here's this election that's going to dictate history. It couldn't be bigger. It couldn't touch more people. There couldn't be more attention, tens and tens of millions of people uh, fixated on their TV screens in that moment. It was so big. Right. And then uh, there's also you, mm-hmm. like actual human being. And I, I just couldn't figure out how it felt to you. Well, I have to say it, that I think I was in shock. And when you're in shock, it's like you're padded in cotton. and You are not all there in whatever environment you find yourself. And so it was so surreal, unbelievable, uh, that I had to come to grips with it. And looking at the faces of my campaign team, my family, my friends, was so depressing because they were as shocked as I was. I hadn't even prepared a concession speech. I'd been working on my victory speech, which I was looking forward to delivering at the Javits Center. Uh, and once it became clear, you know, around midnight or, or shortly after, uh, that the race was going to be called for Trump, I had to think of what I was going to say. I was in no frame of mind to say it that night. You know, I knew Trump was going to go out and I needed to call him before he did because that's part of the ritual. What is that phone call like? Oh, partly it's impossible to remember because it was so bizarre uh, to call him and congratulate him. Uh, I don't really remember much else of what I said or he said. I say in the book, it was almost an out-of-body experience. And yet it was like calling a neighbor and saying, I'm sorry, I won't make your barbecue. I mean, (laughs) really, you just had to get through it. And we did, I did, and then I had to begin talking to my speechwriting team about what I was going to say. And then we had to figure out where I was going to say it because we had nowhere to have an event in the middle of the night to deliver a speech I never thought I'd have to give. Reading the book, it's like it just um, it was hard for me to wrap my head around these almost like mundane things that had to happen. Like you had to find a room, got to make this phone call. But you know, Max, in a way, those were milestones that you could lay out and know that you had to hit them. You know, I had to give a speech. I had to make that call. uh, I had to thank my staff. You know, I had to kind of get through it. And actually, the expectations were comforting 
because as Secretary of State for four years, you know, I traveled around the world telling people, oh, you know, democracy is hard work. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. You've got to, you know, continue to support the process. Well, here I was having lost a race that I didn't think I would lose to someone who was not qualified or temperamentally prepared to be president. But I had to go through those steps, not just for me, because I, I could put one foot in front of the other, but, you know, for the country. And it, there is a, there's a, a set of expectations, which I think help you get through those traumatic times. So they finally found a place, and we finally had a draft after arguing about what to say and what not to say. Uh, and then I, you know, went and delivered it with my husband, my daughter, my son-in-law, and with Tim Kaine and his wife, Anne. And it was excruciating. It was unbelievably painful. But again, I thought, okay, I have to set an example. I'm shattered in my head, my heart, my soul, um, but I'm not going to give in to it. And I've got to make my best efforts to encourage other people who supported me not to either, and particularly young women and girls. And that's why I said what I said in my concession speech. That was clear to you that that, that was the message that you were going to deliver? Yes. And well, after we went back and forth, I mean, there were some on my team who said, no, you need to be uh, really defiant. He's going to be a terrible president. I said, look, we think that, and we have lots of reason to think that, and we tried to warn the country. I mean, people saw him you know, bragging about sexually abusing women, and they voted for him anyway. They knew that he cheated students at his university, and he was bankrupt four times. They voted anyway. Mm -hmm. So we have to hope that he can you know, summon some character that we've not seen yet uh, in order to be the president that we should have. And so I did say in my concession speech that, you know, we should give him the, you know, the support that he deserved as our new president to do that. But I was mostly interested in addressing my supporters. I mean, the people in the room where I was speaking were sobbing. And as we drove from one hotel to the next hotel, people on the streets were sobbing. And so this was high emotion. I don't remember any day in New York like that day. Oh. I, was, I took the subway to work that morning and I mean, people openly crying on the subway. I, I actually haven't thought about that morning in a while, but yeah, it was like the whole, the whole city was mourning. Well, the city probably knew both of us better than any place in the country. And you know, I beat the heck out of them <laughs> in a, in a place where we were both known and there was no doubt in the minds of New Yorkers, look, the guy's a con artist. He's an entertaining con artist, but that's what he is. Uh, so there was a, a special sense of loss and, and just absolute shock in New York, but a lot of other places too, because that was one of my ongoing experiences over the following months. I mean, it still happens today. People come up to me and you know, ask if they can hug me, start to cry. You're definitely going to have to start consoling me at some point in this conversation. <laughs> That's guaranteed to happen. Well, we'll we'll get through it. Okay. All right. Good. As long as you can be strong. <laughs> uh, there are a couple other things about that 24 hours that I want to ask you about, and I, they're not even really questions. But 
when I was reading the book, sitting with you now, like I just, I can't stop thinking about that kind of juxtaposition of like this huge global event and then you personally, and there, there were two small moments that you write about in the book that just kind of broke my heart, I guess. And one of them was leaving the outfit that you were going to deliver the victory speech in its garment bag mm-hmm. uh, and putting on the clothes that you were going to wear to Washington for the first time. Right. Purple get up. Yep. And then the other was riding back here to Westchester uh, with your husband, just that car ride and how quiet it was. Mm. Uh, well, obviously I remember both very well and I was really proud to wear white for important events, one of the debates, the acceptance of the nomination in Philadelphia, and I was going to wear white again um, on the victory stage. And I had it uh, all ready. Um, I brought other things too, because sometimes you spill things or things get unwearable. And so I did have the suit with the purple lapels that I was going to wear the first time I went to Washington as president-elect. And I wanted to send the, sim- the symbolic message, like, you know, I am going to be the president for everybody. I'm really proud and grateful to the 66 million people who voted for me, but I'm going to be the president of people who select me. I'm going to do my best for everybody. And instead, I wore it, and Bill wore a purple tie to send that message of, unity and and kind of moving beyond blue and red states uh, during the concession speech. And I hugged a lot of people after it was over. A lot of people cried. George W. Bush called and held until I could talk to him. And, you know, he was very gracious and telling me he was thinking about me. And uh, then it was done. And so Bill and I went out and got in the back of the van that we drive around in. Secret Service drives it. And I just felt like all of the adrenaline was drained. I mean, there was nothing left. It was like somebody, you know, had pulled the plug on a bathtub and everything just drained out. And I just slumped over, sat there, you know, every once in a while Bill would say, well, that was a really great speech or, you know, try to be uh, consoling and supportive, which I was greatly appreciative of. And then we got home And it was just us, as it has been for so many years in our little house with our dogs. And, you know, it was a really painful, exhausting time. But it was also um, the beginning of my, you know, trying to come to grips with what happened and to be as honest as I possibly could about it. Uh, I didn't do any hard thinking for the first couple of days. I did more uh, walking in the woods, um, but I was determined that I would recover from the loss. I, I know so many people who have lost so much in their lives, and I'm always so impressed and admiring of their resilience, and I've been lucky and blessed to have resilience too, and I thought, well, you know, I can learn from a lot of what my friends and people I admire in history have gone through. But first, I just have to put one foot in front of the other and, you know, put on some sweats and just get as much rest as I possibly can. All that sounds like uh, 
like a form of, of grieving to me. It is a form of grieving. That's a very fair assessment. And people grieve in different ways. And some of my friends are still grieving. And some of my friends are so wrought up every single day, everything they read, every story on TV, every crazy, mean, lousy thing Trump and his people do just sets them off. And they can hardly contain themselves. And I worry about them. I mean, they really are depleting their reserves. And I want us to regroup and be part of the resistance and be part of you know, winning elections and sending messages to these people that their mean-spirited, hateful alliances with neo-Nazis and white supremacists and Ku Klux Klaners is not what America is. So I have friends who grieve very differently than I do. I'm, I'm somebody who eventually says, all right, what am I going to do and how am I going to do it? And that's how I got to deciding, oh, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book and I'm going to be as candid, honest, open as I possibly can in trying to figure out what happened because I think it's not just about me and not just about one election, but what the heck is going on in our country? Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for just a second, let you know that support for today's show comes from Audible. Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, and business information providers. And as of Tuesday, they've got uh, the book for my guest this week. What Happened by Hillary Clinton is available on Audible, and in fact, the secretary reads it herself. Uh, I use Audible all the time. It is uh, the way that I can read a book when I'm walking the dog or walking to the train or on a super crowded Q train in New York because it's delayed for the millionth time uh, or walking to the office. It's uh, super easy. It works on any device. And uh, if you want to try a book like, say, What Happened by Hillary Clinton, uh, you can get it free right now with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash longform. That's www.audible.com slash longform. And you're going to get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial. Go check it out. Also sponsoring the show this week, Casper. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Supportive memory foam creates an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. You can try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up. They'll refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. There's free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada and over 20,000 reviews with an average of 4.8 stars online. It's the Internet's favorite mattress. It's also a... My favorite mattress. I've got a Casper mattress at home. Uh, I sleep great. It really is comfortable. The price truly is shockingly fair. And uh, best of all, you don't have to go to the mattress store. It just shows up in a box at your house, and you've got a great mattress. Try it yourself. You can get 50 bucks toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash longform and using the offer code longform. Again, that's casper.com slash longform. Offer code LONGFORM for 50 bucks off any mattress. Terms and conditions, they apply. Let's get back to Hillary. The book was supposed to be like uh, quotes, right? You know, originally, my publisher that has published all the books I've done, going back to It Takes a Village, 
wanted me to publish a book of quotes because I've collected quotes my whole life. I carry, I carry a little notebook filled with ones that I've collected. I have other, you know, sources of them, and I find it, you know, comforting and encouraging uh, and funny to look at them from time to time. So, you know, they knew that I'd be at loose ends, and so they said, <laughs> "You'd have hey, some time on your hands." Yeah, I'd have some time on my hand. They said, "You know that book you have talked? Would you like to do that?" I said, "Oh, well, maybe. Let me think about it." And I, I ended up telling them, I think, like in January. I said, "Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do that." And it took like about a week or two of trying to outline and plan. I thought, you know, that's not what I want to write about. I want to figure out and gather all the evidence to guide me what happened in this election. And people said, oh, my gosh, you know, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. And I said, you know, it may be. But it's kind of essential to me and to the people that worked with me that we do our best to figure this out. What did we miss? And what were the external forces that hit us that may or may not ever occur again, but more likely than not will? And I called two of my speechwriters and the head of research for the campaign. I said, are you guys game for helping me do this? Because the publisher said to me, look, if you're going to do it, you're going to have to get it out before the end of the year because otherwise, you know, it's going to get drowned in everybody else writing books about the campaign. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and so we began this intensive forced march starting in, I guess, February to put it together. And it was a painful, exhausting, ultimately cathartic experience, which helped me get through all of the aftermath of the election and what Trump was doing every day in Washington. How do you start that project? Like, I got to imagine that for a couple of months there, you were just kind of like knocking around this house. You were right. Thinking what happened quite often. Yes, I was. Uh, yes, I was. So did you have some theories at that point? Like, how do you go about uh, I, doing I had some theories, and I had to prepare an outline. And I, I, you know, kicked ideas back and forth with my team about what needed to be in the book and how we would uh, try to describe, you know, my attitude, my truth about what happened. And I still was into the quote thing, because I thought, you know, I can use quotes to illustrate. And there are quotes, as you saw in the book, that, you know, the numbers shrank enormously, but they're, you know, they're ones that are meaningful to me. And once I began working on the outline and once we began to argue back and forth about what needed to be in it, I was very open to hearing from other people. And people started coming to see me, people that I knew well and people I hardly knew at all with theories. And it was fascinating because I learned things in the process of preparing and writing this book that I wasn't fully aware of. And I write about it uh, write about them in the book. So people were coming and saying, you know, we really have to unpack the Mercers, Cambridge Analytica, the impact of WikiLeaks. I mean, you've got to really look at that. Of course, I knew that the proximate cause of my loss was the Jim Comey letter on October 28th. I knew that. And I was obviously relieved every time somebody else came forward and said, you know what, that's what happened. And Nate Silver, who I have a high regard for, was the first to say, you know, she would have been president, but for. If the election had been on October 27th, she would have been president. So I knew that was a big part of the story, but I didn't think it was the only part of the story. And things began to happen. People would send me articles. People would direct me to others. And I, and a, and a 
a picture started to emerge of the principal reasons why I think I lost and why we have to be really vigilant against the threats uh, that are still present against our country. Sounds like some form of like really radical, intense therapy to like invite people to your house to it was. break it, this all down. Yeah, it really was, Max. I mean, because once I got into it, I got very concerned that I, I'd be a, as objective as possible. Look, I'm well aware of the mistakes I made. I write about them. But I didn't think that was the whole story. And I wanted to listen to voices. And, and we had some great arguments. I mean, people would say, this is, you know, this is one of the things that happened. Others would no, no. So it was just a deeper and deeper dive all the time. Okay, you prove your point. You prove yours. I don't want to go on anecdote. I don't want to go on feeling. Show me your evidence. Were you arguing too? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there were people who would say, well, I mean, do you really think Comey made that big a difference? I'd say, absolutely. Well, show me the evidence. So we began to acquire, you know, acquire the evidence. And then people would say, well, you know, I don't think the Russians was that big a deal. Okay, let's figure out what we know and, and what more we have to know. And yeah, you know what? It turns out it was. So I had a theory of the case, but I was very open to being proven wrong. Um, and we just kept plugging away. And you know what? Some of the things we're only going to find out now, like we finally, through Facebook's own admission, can say what we believed, which is that they were taking foreign money and running fake news. Yeah. There's so many points in the book where you're like, this is probably going to yeah. like have changed by the time it comes yeah. out. And that's, that yeah. was... And because we, this is an ongoing story and it's one we have to get right. Were there things in that process assumptions you had that got proven wrong? I would say we went back and forth on some that I was uh, not 100% sure on, and they're still kind of in that category of up in the air. I had some original ideas about why Comey did what he did. That kind of evolved over time. I still don't think we know. And so I don't, I, I, I had some stuff written, which I took out because I couldn't prove it. But I don't understand why he did what he did, especially when he wouldn't tell the country that uh, the Trump campaign was being investigated for links to Russia. So none of it made sense. So I kind of leave that open because I, I couldn't prove one way or the other. What was it like? So like you were a couple months into writing the book, spending so much time in the book on Comey. What, what was that day like for you when he got fired? Really fascinating. And remember, the first rationale for firing him yeah, was, was a memo which summarized everything I believed and which others had said, other prosecutors, both Republicans and Democrats, had said, you know, this guy really was out of bounds. He was unprecedented in how he behaved both in July and in October. And so I was, you know, feeling like, okay, you know, that's, that's the story. But I knew that the reason he got fired was because of Russia. So in the book, I say, let's keep two thoughts in your head at the same time. He really stepped out of bounds and behaved uh, wrongly in the email investigation. But he should not have been fired for investigating Russia. And, you know, that that's the kind of tough call you have to make and that I made uh, in this book. Uh, so 
the Russia investigation is so big, it's so important. And I thought, okay, you know, they fired him because they didn't think they could control him. And one of the reasons they didn't think they could control him was because he violated Department of Justice protocol in the way he treated me. So, I mean, it's all connected in uh, lots of cross currents here. But the bottom line is, you know, what I say in the book about his behavior is right, but Trump's firing him was wrong. It must have just been surreal, though, to see Rosenstein put that letter forth that's like, basically what you were writing in the book. It was. I mean, every day that went by, as we, you know, we, we you know, really kept working and working. I laid out the outline, you know, I, I had a, a first draft, but things were changing so fast that we had to respond to everything and I had to revise and, and amend. Um, so yes, it was both somewhat validating and gratifying to see other people saying what I believed uh, even people on the other side of the aisle. Uh, it didn't explain why he did what he did, but the fact that it happened and that it had the impact on the election was no longer uh, debatable. But this went on all the time. And you know, shortly after I started writing the book, uh, uh, a uh, professor from the University of Kentucky She's a gender studies professor, and she'd written about women historical figures. Uh, I think Anne Boleyn and got nominated for a Pulitzer, as I remember. She wrote a book called The Destruction of Hillary Clinton. And it was a kind of academic book, and apparently she'd been working on it during the campaign. She published it. It kind of fell off the radar. Nobody knew about it. And a friend of mine uh, saw it and got a copy and, and sent it to me. And I mean, she had chapter and verse about the sexism and misogyny uh, in this campaign, which is endemic in our society still. But she had references and evidence that I hadn't seen. I hadn't paid that much attention to it. And all of a sudden, like, wow, look at that. You know, I got to figure out how to talk about that. That's not easy to talk about. That's why I have a whole chapter, you know, on being a woman in politics and about sexism and misogyny, because we better start talking about it. So much of it is just embedded in people's assumptions and stereotypes. I never heard of this woman, and all of a sudden, here's her book. So things like that happened, I would say, every week, if not every day, that really informed my thinking and gave me a lot more material to work with. When you sat down to write that chapter about women in politics, uh, I mean... Uh, you have been a woman in politics for quite some time. I have been. You've mm-hmm. been thinking about it for a while. Mm-hmm. You wrote about it differently than I've heard you talk about it before. It felt to me more honest, mm-hmm. maybe, or at least less reserved. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm interested in the actual process and moments of writing that. Like, you're in a room by yourself. Mm-hmm. Are you th- have you been thinking that way the whole time and now you're just willing to commit it to paper? Is something new coming out of you that you didn't uh, quite realize? How does that work? It's a great question, Max, because you're right. I've lived with it. I've watched it. I've experienced it. But like so many women, I really didn't want to call attention to it or give in to it because you pay a price for that. Uh, You speak out against sexism. 
you point your finger at misogyny and you know the cries go up and if you're in a professional position it can quickly turn into you're not tough enough you're not strong enough come on you know and we now know it is endemic and certainly not just in politics i mean everything coming out of silicon valley in the you know last 10 months has been fodder for my thinking businesses in other parts of the country everywhere so i thought you know i have to be really as unvarnished uh, and honest, candid as I can be, because it's not just about me. I left the State Department with a 69% approval rating because I did a really good job, but it was a job in service of a man. I'm proud of that. I am proud to have been in Barack Obama's cabinet. I am proud to have supported him in uh, those four years. But before the election, my friend Cheryl Sandberg came to see me, and she brought two of the researchers, one from Penn, one from Stanford, who have studied all of this in depth. And she left me with several messages, and, and here's three of them. One, the research is absolutely undeniable. The more professionally successful a man is, the more likable he is. The more professionally successful a woman is, the less likable she is. A woman in service to others is viewed favorably. A woman ambitious and acting on her behalf is viewed unfavorably. The classic example is if I go to somebody and ask that they give a raise to my coworker because my coworker really has earned it, I get points. If I go and ask for a raise because I feel like I've earned it, I get penalized, whereas a man doing exactly the same thing doesn't. And so Cheryl said to me, just remember they, and the they was voters, the press, they will have no empathy for you, for your struggle, for what you represent. And so I've always just sucked it up. You know, I sucked it up in 08 when some, you know, really unpleasant things happened to me. I just kept going. Uh, I sucked it up and I was Secretary of State when, you know, I'd go to the Middle East and they'd treat me like an honorary man because that was the only way that they could deal with me. And I sucked it up in the 2016 campaign when I was called names and things were said and done to me. And one of the most interesting things, which nobody's picked up on yet in the book, you know, we recently had this, you know, big kerfuffle, this condemnation of Kathy Griffin for the picture she had of herself holding a head of Trump like a play on Perseus holding the head of Medusa. They were selling T-shirts and mugs at the Republican convention with Trump holding my head. Nobody said a word, not a word. And so really smart commentators like Margaret Atwood, who you know, wrote Handmaid's Tale, said, you know, what was said about me was medieval. And I just powered through it. I thought, okay, you know, they will have no empathy. If you stop and point it out, they'll think you're weak. And I have a story in there about, you know, the moment my, my eyes teared up in 2008 and how men get to tear up all the time. And I've seen Barack Obama and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan. I personally have seen them. And oh my God, they get points for their empathy and their sympathy and their compassion. And when Pat Schroeder you know, cried for about three seconds. Oh my gosh, she's still paying a price for it. So my 
eyes tear up. And John Edwards, who was still in the campaign, you know, says, well, you know, you got to be tough to be president. It's a tough job. So I was really well aware of all of the downsides. And therefore, my composure and my calmness was not only because I think that's appropriate for a leader, but it was also because we still don't have a very broad band of acceptable behavior for women in public life. Did you feel like you had any other option other than suck it up? No, I did not. I think in retrospect, I might have. And that's part of what I was trying to point out to the reader when I wrote about the second debate. You know, this was right on the heels of the Hollywood Access tape. Everybody in the country saw it. Everybody in the world saw it. And we're about to have a debate, and he's pulling all kinds of stunts, and I'm getting ready to walk out on the debate stage. And, you know, my chief of debate prep, a great guy named Ron Klain, says, you know, he's trying to get into your head. Now, we had practiced him stalking me on the debate stage. And my conclusion, supported by my team, was just ignore it. Don't pay any attention to it. You know, just act like a president. So I'm out there, and he's stalking, and he's leering, and he's making faces. And I'm, like, in my head thinking, okay, I'm used to just sort of powering through any distraction. This is very uncomfortable, having this guy do this to me. I know what he's trying to do, which is to somehow throw me off. So I'm not going to let him. So that was... I stuck with option A, which was what I had thought about and practiced. But, you know, option B would have been to turn on him, you know, either through dismissiveness or some kind of sarcasm to really try to score a point on him. And I didn't do it because I worried that it would be seen as anger or weakness and that it would redound to my detriment. But that's the kind of stuff you have to think about all the time. Part of the burden is just having to do that math all the time. All the time. Yeah. And it's exhausting. (laughs) If you, if you didn't have to do the math, what would you have done? I probably would have done what I did. You know, I was judged to have won the debate. I won all three debates and I had a very strong belief that at the end of the day, people were going to say, well, who do I want handling North Korea? (laughs) Who do I want, you know, fighting for me and my country? And they were going to say, you know, this other guy's entertaining and he hosted a reality TV show, but no, he's not what I want in the Oval Office. And, you know, I would be steady. I would be predictable. um, And, you know, so that's the bet I made. Do you regret that? I regret it to the extent that I don't know what might have happened if I could have pulled off something different. And part of the reason I go to this length and talking about it in the book is I hope there will be other women running and I will bet everything I've got they'll face the same kinds of challenges. So I'm hoping they can see what I went through and my candor in talking about it and learn some valuable lessons and think ahead about how to deal with, uh, you know, this kind of endemic uh, sexism and misogyny. I hope they never have to run against somebody who is like, you know, exhibit A of uh, well, that, that behavior. But that's part of it, right? It's like on some level you would have faced that no matter what. And yet also you happen to face like uh, 
textbook definition creep. Yes. Is maybe the thing yeah, you could say. Yeah, back off creep. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was like, thinking I should say. It wasn't subtle. No. It wasn't subtle. And see, I thought because it was so blatant, people would be turned off. And I think a lot of women were. I mean, I've heard that from many women. And, you know, I think it solidified my vote, but it also fed the hyper-aggressive masculinity theme that he was playing for his supporters. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, we, we really were almost running campaigns in two different Americas. I mean, his campaign was aimed at the angry, the resentful, uh, the hateful. He stoked it. He started his campaign calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. He went after all kinds of people in such a really offensive way, but it fed the desire on the part of those who wanted to throw it all up and wanted something totally different and who were wrongly convinced that, uh, you know, political correctness infringes free speech as opposed to, you know, being respectful and tolerant of people who are different from yourself. And there was just a deep need to find scapegoats. And fascinatingly, it wasn't the poor and striving who were feeling this. I mean, people who made less than $50,000 voted for me. People who said the economy was their number one issue voted for me. The average Trump voter in the primaries had an income of about $72,000. It was people who just thought they deserved better. They deserved more. And that somebody, somebody was standing in the way. And then, of course, what we saw in Charlottesville was that there truly is, in our country, a deep, destructive cohort of people who identify with Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan, who call themselves white supremacists, who see Putin, this white authoritarian leader, uh, as a role model. That was a surprise to me, I have to tell you. How do you get uh, the news? How do I get the news? Yeah, how do you get the news? I spend a lot of time online reading traditional news sources, New York Times, Washington Post, etc. I spend a lot of time on Twitter. You just scroll in Twitter? Just scrolling. Like sitting on the couch? Yeah, sitting on the couch. I listen to NPR. That's Be- such a bummer that you're just scrolling Twitter. Don't do that. <laughs> I, I am open to all advice. I have started listening to podcasts. That's not exactly breaking news, but it's newsy. Um, so that's how I'm basically, and occasionally I watch TV. Do you follow this stuff closely? Yes, I do. I read, pap- I read newspapers too. This is kind of a question about writing too, I think. Like, I have a theory. Okay, good. You can tell me whether, whether, I like theories. whether or not you buy this theory. Yeah. A thing that people have asked me, the f- few people I told I was doing this have asked me, uh, a couple of other people on Twitter have asked it too, you've probably <laughs> seen it, is uh, like, why I do this? Mm-hmm. Why write a book? And a theory that I have, which you can confirm or deny, is that this is what you do. You work. I do. And you follow what is happening in the world and engage with it. And you were part of a historic campaign. And this book is the work of processing what happened. Is that is that theory right? It's 100% right. The book was a processing of what happened. I found it very important to do. And as I have 
said it was cathartic. I like to work. I am somebody who organizes my time around what I am doing. And what I do is related to what I care about. And what I really care about is public service and good government and balanced, smart politics. What time of day do you write? Usually in the morning, because I'm exhausted by the night, usually. Um, but in the morning, you, that's that's the best time for me to write. Then I revise and, you know, in, in the process of writing this book, I was, you know, sending drafts to my writing team and my fact-checking guy, and we were going back and forth, and that would come in the afternoon, and then I'd work on it. But literally toward the end, it was like 24-7. What kind of feedback were you getting on those early drafts? It was mixed. I mean, some of what I was writing was too bitter, too angry, <laughs> too cynical, um, and they were not shy about telling me that. And some of it was too general, not focused or specific, so I just had to get into the groove where I was going to pull the curtain back and talk about what happened in the most straightforward, candid way I could. Uh, and the team was terrific in giving me great feedback and, and helping me think through a lot of the writing challenges. Did you uh, become less bitter uh, or was the bitterness like the, the true candor? <laughs> and then you had to just like uh, tone it down a little bit. Cause... It, it was both. I mean, I did become less bitter, but uh, I also had to like read every sentence, you know, 10 times to make sure it said what I intended for it to say. And sometimes, you know, I wanted it to have an edge and sometimes I didn't. I turned in the first draft sometime in May. So I pretty much worked on it for, you know, three and a half months nonstop. This book's like 450 pages long. You wrote it in yeah. three months? No, no, I wrote it in six months. I turned in the first draft ah. like three and a half months in. That's still really fast. Yeah, it was. And, and, and the, but the response was positive from the publisher. And so they came back and originally I thought this book would come out around, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas. And they came back and they said, you got a lot of good stuff in there. You still need to do a lot of work. If you can get it done by the end of June, we could get it out in September. I said, okay, so September 26th or so. And getting it done in June would, you know, mean July you'd copy edit it, August you'd do the audio, you know. So they were willing to put it on a faster track. And so then the next draft went in, and they really liked that. And they came back and they said, you know, if you could get everything done by the end of July, we could get it out even earlier. I figured, what the heck, you know, in for a dime, in for a dollar, might as well. So it was just around the clock. I was so tired, I could barely see. I heard that there were like, uh, there were some all-nighters. Oh, many all-nighters in this house. We, you know, people would come to, to edit, to fact check, uh, argue still right up to the last minute. And then they'd sleep all over the place <laughs> and eat, you know, junk food. I talk to writers a lot, and that thing happens sometimes where it's not necessarily like a publisher saying hit this deadline, but like you're just kind of like in the flow of it. Yes. Was that how it was for yes, you? Yes, it really was. That's a very good description. Yes, I, I, I could feel all of the pieces coming together. I thought I had a case to make about what happened. I was buttressing it, validating it, and then I really wanted to tell some personal stories in it because I wanted people to understand where I was coming from. And then I wanted to end it by pointing people uh, to the future. You know, here's what you can do and here's how you can make a difference. And so 
it did consume me. It was a very fast flow at the end. One thing that's interesting to me reading it is it's it's quite like lawyerly at points. Like you really like lay out the argument. Right. There's sort of like a TikTok on Comey and there's like, okay, let's go through Wisconsin and what happened there. And it's kind of this point mm-hmm. by point thing. Is that is that kind of the way you think? It is. It's very much the way I think. But this book was different from anything I've ever written to be published. Why? Because it was much more personal and it really was pulling back the curtain and letting people see everything from what it's like being a woman on the campaign trail and how much time you spend on hair and makeup, 25 days when it was all added up. And then it was making a case. And there were several things I felt I had to make a case on. You know, I had a point of view about the emails and the craziness and the lies and the exaggeration that was out there that hurt me so much. And I took responsibility for making the first, you know, dumb mistake of doing it. But it was a really even dumber scandal. And I wanted to, for history's sake, to say, okay, here are the facts, not from me, but from other voices, Rod Rosenstein being one and others as well. And when it came to Russia, it was such a complicated story that I thought had so much importance to whether our democracy is going to survive. And I don't want to sound too dramatic, but that's what I think, that I I had to be just as careful as possible and lay down the chronology and, you know, what we knew when and why it matters. I wanted it to be both personal and political and to try to find the right, you know, meld of that. Was it different to write a book without the kind of like specter of some future race sitting in front yeah, of you? Yeah, it is. It's very different. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, done as a political candidate. I'm not done with politics. I intend to be very active and to try to make a difference and get people involved and support candidates and all of that. But I am always amazed. You know, I ran against a lot of men. I ran against a bunch of men in 08. I ran against a bunch of men in, you know, 2016. They're never asked, why are you doing this? What does this mean to you? I mean, it, it's like so weird. And I thought, okay, I'm going to tell you the best I can why I do what I do. And you can like it or not. But here is what I thought should have been obvious over my decades of public life. But in case it's not, I'm going to remind you. Okay, so just so I'm clear, you're, you're uh, not running for anything again? No, no, <laughs> no, no. But I sure want to make sure Democrats get elected. That's my goal. I think that's good. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our show is edited this week by Jenna Weiss-Berman, out of retirement, and Courtney Harrell. Thanks to them. Uh, thanks to MailChimp. MailChimp has been with this show from the very start, and uh, I can't thank them enough. They have made it possible for us to do it and for you to listen to it. And uh, thanks to Hillary Clinton for coming on the show. Her book is called What Happened. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. 
In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.